Welcome to Porter Wright's Antitrust Law Source. Welcome to the inaugural podcast of our series on competition, antitrust, and consumer protection matters. My name is Jay Levine. I'll be your host. I'm a partner in the D.C. office of Porter Wright, Morris, and Arthur. And while some podcasts will feature just me, hopefully in the main, we will have at least one or two guests um, to provide insight into the subject matter. Um, the antitrust laws, in some respects, what they're not and what they're designed to achieve. And this will give you a fair basis to evaluate conduct that you see going on in the marketplace and whether that conduct should be, you know, scary, <laughs> that conduct is actionable, or that conduct is um, perfectly legitimate under the antitrust laws. So let me start by giving you a brief overview of the basic antitrust principles. Now, the basic design and objective of the antitrust laws is to guard against the exercise or the acquisition of market power by firms either acting alone or acting in concert with one another. There's a uh, tagline in an old Supreme Court case that the antitrust laws are there to design to protect competition and not competitors. And I can't tell you how many clients have scratched their heads trying to figure out what that means. And really what the Supreme Court was trying to say is that it's the competitive process that the antitrust laws <clears throat> excuse me, are there to uh, protect. Uh, they're not there to protect against any one competitor. If the competitor is being harmed because there is damage being done to the competitive process by a firm or a group of firms, then that competitor will have an action um, that can be brought under the antitrust laws. But if that competitor is being crushed, but there is nothing being done to the competitive process that is still alive and, and anybody is free to compete fairly and meaningfully, then the fact that that competitor is being hurt will not enable it to run to the government or to um, initiate an action on itself. Now, how do you know whether there's conduct there that may be violative of the antitrust laws? Well, ask yourself one of these few questions. Are prices going up as a result of the conduct? If they are, then that's a at least an indication that the competitive process may be injured and that there may be something um, afoot. Another question is, is quality decreasing or will quality decrease? We know that firms with more market share, and if you take your stereotypical monopolist, the monopolist charges the most it can get and provides the least quality product or service. So if the conduct is going to result in a firm or firms um, not being as innovative or not providing as good of quality as it used to um, because it's not being pushed to, there's no competitive process there pushing it to be its best, well, then that, again, is another indication that something may be violating the antitrust laws. And then finally, another way of, it's the flip side of the, are prices going to go up? Is output going to go down? Um, obviously, you curtail supply, and that will drive prices up. If you keep supply at its same level, then there's nothing driving prices down. So, uh, again, ask yourself, is supply going to go down? Will output decrease? Now, 
there are times when one of these outcomes may be happening as a result of certain conduct, and yet it's still not problematic under the antitrust laws. You also have to ask yourself whether there's any pro-competitive, legitimate business justification. And that's just fancy terms for, is there a good reason for this to be done other than the fact that it's going to line your pockets with more coin? And if it is enhancing efficiency, if in economic terms, consumer welfare is being enhanced, then that's a good indication that the competitive process is not necessarily being injured. What happens if you have, um, you know, uh, multiple results where there's efficiency enhancing results, there's legitimate business justification, yet prices may be going up or output may be going down. How do you resolve that? That you're going to have to listen to a future podcast on. (laughs) Right now, I'm just going to give you sort of the lay of the land. In terms of antitrust laws, they're not a monolithic entity. There are several different federal statutes that comprise what we call the antitrust laws or the antitrust regime. First, there's Section 1 of the Sherman Act, which was enacted in 1890, and that prohibits unreasonable restraints of trade. Uh, Section 1 requires different economic actors acting in concert. So it has nothing to do with single firm conduct. There is always more than one actor in a Section 1 conflict. Moving on to Section 2 of the Sherman Act, which was also enacted in 1890, that prohibits monopolizations, attempts to monopolize, and conspiracies to monopolize. And that's where you get to the single firm conduct type issue where, oh my God, my competitor is crushing me because he is buying up all of the available supply. Again, we would have to evaluate whether there's a legitimate business justification in your competitor doing so. But if there isn't, then the only reason he or she is buying up all of the available supply is that you don't have any and you would be run out of business. The result of that would be your competitor becomes the monopolist and is able to charge price above competitive levels, and that would be a concern of Section 2 of the Sherman Act. Now there's Section 7 of the Clayton Act, and I wouldn't worry too much about the nomenclature um, of these statutes, but I do want to give you some basis as when we refer to them in the future. Section 7 deals with acquisitions, mergers, and certain joint ventures. And again, they make it unlawful to acquire, to merge, or to uh, engage in a joint venture, which is likely to substantially lessen competition. Section 7 both allows you to sue after the fact, and there's a prophylactic element to Section 7 as well that allows you to sue to enjoin, to stop a merger from um, happening. In those instances, obviously the court and the government agency have to peer into the crystal ball as to what the likely effects of the merger or the acquisition are. And these issues play out in the front pages of the business sections of our papers every day. Next up is the Federal Trade Commission Act. That was enacted in 1914. And not only did it establish the Federal Trade Commission, but it also provides that unfair methods of competition and unfair or deceptive acts or practices are unlawful. Under the um, Federal Trade Commission Act, only the FTC, the Federal Trade Commission, can sue. It does not provide what we call a private right of action. In other words, it does not allow 
um, your normal citizen off the street to, to sue. Only the FTC can. Finally, we have a, a statute that's a bit of an anomaly under the antitrust laws. It's called the Robinson-Patman Act. It's a 1936 um, act that was, um, you know, legislated, you know, during the time of the Depression. Um, its goal was to protect small mom and pop stores um, because the larger supermarkets and retail chains were able to get huge volume discounts and essentially were much more efficient operations and were able to compete the small mom and pops out of business. So the so Congress legislated several different things under the Robinson-Patman Act, but the things that you need to be aware of in your day-to-day business, it makes it illegal to discriminate in terms of price. You cannot sell to two different customers the same article for different prices. And it also... Um, uh, it, there's a certain uh, commercial bribery element to Section 2C of the Robinson-Patman Act, and there's also promotional and advertising discrimination that disallows um, in Sections 2D and 2E. We'll discuss the Robinson-Patman Act in more detail in a future podcast. Um, suffice it to say that it's on the books. Um, the federal government has not enforced it in quite some time. doesn't mean they can't. Um, private plaintiffs do sue under it from time to time, but it is a very expensive and laborious process to sue under the Robinson-Patman Act. You just have to know it exists and have to know what your practical effect and the business risk is in engaging in conduct that might be violative of the Robinson-Patman Act. Okay, now let's turn to sort of enforcement guidelines. The antitrust authorities, uh, our antitrust agencies in the federal government, meaning the antitrust division of the Department of Justice, as well as the Federal Trade Commission, do an excellent job of publishing guidelines on a variety of topic matters as they relate to antitrust and competition matters. Uh, I just want to make the audience aware of a few of these. There's the Antitrust Guidelines for the Licensing of Intellectual Property, which, as its name suggests, discusses um, the antitrust implications of various licensing um, scenarios under um, for IP. There's the Statements of the Healthcare Antitrust Enforcement Policy. Uh, these were actually developed back in 1996 and have application well beyond the healthcare um, arena. Uh, for instance, uh, the healthcare um, statements um, discuss how and when it is most appropriate to share competitively sensitive information. Um, most antitrust practitioners use those guidelines in their everyday practice, um, whether or not the client is involved in the um, healthcare industry. Um, then there's also the Antitrust Guidelines for Collaborations Among Competitors, which was drafted in April of 2000 and is still relevant today. And again, what it does is just pretty much kind of codifies what the case law has already been said and what the enforcement agency's point of view is on competitors collaborating under what rubric it is permissible, when it becomes problematic, and um, some areas in between. Um, here's one we use a lot, the Horizontal Merger Guidelines, um, developed, oh, way back 
um, decades ago, but been revised most recently in August of 2010. And uh, this is where um, the antitrust authorities give their fairly detailed view on how they look at horizontal mergers, how they will analyze a merger, and when um, they may decide to open an investigation and bring a challenge. For those of you in the healthcare field, you have your own policy statement regarding accountable care organizations that was drafted and, uh, and published in October of 2011. And besides all of these wonderful guidelines, um, there are also numerous business review letters and advisory opinions that the agencies issue when they are requested to do so by private citizens regarding certain conduct they wish to engage in. Those opinions and business review letters, the verbiage is a little bit different depending on the agency. DOJ issues business review letters. The FTC issues advisory opinions. But in the end, they're basically the same, and it's the agency's opinion on what um, on what they think um, are the risks of any conduct you're thinking of engaging in, um, assuming you have you brought something to their attention. And again, cold from these letters and, um, and opinions, um, one can discern kind of where the agency is going and what they believe um, are the hot buttons for antitrust law. Okay, l- let me mention something about state antitrust law. There are obviously state antitrust laws. I don't know if it's in every single state, but in most of the states in our country, there are separate and distinct antitrust laws. Many of them mirror the federal, but some do not, and some explicitly depart from the federal laws in certain respects. You should just know that they exist. Frankly, common law regarding competition matters predates the Sherman Act, goes back to England. And when when you're thinking of engaging in certain conduct or you think certain conduct may be engaged in by your competitors or suppliers or vendors um, that are harming you competitively, the state antitrust laws and this, um, are another avenue to explore. Now, let me sort of round out kind of this overview of the antitrust laws by who is going to enforce the antitrust laws. Interestingly, enforcement can come from a few different areas. Um, First, the federal uh, government, um, as we mentioned, the Antitrust Division or the Department of Justice enforces the antitrust laws, both civilly and criminally, um, as well as the Federal Trade Commission. Of course, the Federal Trade Commission only enforces civil antitrust laws, not criminal antitrust laws. Uh, the state government can also enforce it. The state attorney generals are um, are empowered both under the respective state antitrust law as well as under the respective um, as as well as under the federal antitrust laws. Um, and then, of course, there's private litigation. Um, any consumer that is being harmed by an antitrust violation, any competitor, any supplier. Anyone who was harmed by the antitrust laws um, can file their own action in civil court. Um, It can be costly to defend against an investigation or litigation. Um, That's why it's, um, you know, an ounce of 
uh, what is it? An ounce of um, prevention is uh, is greater than a pound of cure, something along those lines. Um, the criminal penalties can be somewhat uh, steep. Uh, maximum maximum ten years jail time, a million dollars in individual fines, um, and um, it's it's just you know so you have a rounded picture of forgetting sort of the possible damages, the possible criminal fines, the possible jail time. It is very time-consuming and expensive to defend against an investigation or a litigation. It sucks up money, it sucks up resources, and um, is obviously something that is um, better to be avoided. Now, what antitrust is not? Antitrust is not simply trade regulation. Uh, a lot of people um, have an idea, trade regulation generally refers to a body of law that deals with unfair or deceptive practices. Now, antitrust violations could be, in some respects, an unfair or deceptive practice, but an unfair or deceptive practice in and of itself does not necessarily uh, rise to the level of an antitrust la- uh, violation, but they could be a violation independently of the antitrust laws because there are other consumer protection statutes that make it illegal to engage in unfair deceptive practices, much like the Federal Trade Commission Act um, does in the federal regime. In fact, most states, if not all, have some form of baby FTC act that makes it illegal for companies to engage in unfair deceptive trade practices. Trade regulation generally includes false or deceptive or misleading advertising, unfair competition, trade secret misappropriation. Um, there's, uh, you should know there's also the Lanham Act, which prohibits false designations or origin or false or misleading description that's likely to cause confusion. Or in commercial advertising or promotion, misrepresents the nature, characteristics, qualities, geographic origin of another of your goods or another group person's goods or services. The Lanham Act has, is not um, part of the antitrust laws. They often work in concert. They are both there to protect consumers and consumer welfare, but they do so in different ways. And in some respects, their objectives are a little bit different and they're achieved in a little bit different um, ways. Um, however, just speaking from personal um, uh, history. Um, there are many suits that I have brought as uh, plaintiffs' counsel that included both Lanham Act violations as well as uh, Sherman Act antitrust violations. And I think with that, we'll conclude our first um, podcast. This has been Jay Levine. Remember, competition matters. I look forward to your attendance at our future uh, podcasts. If you have any suggestions for a show, uh, please let me know. You can always follow me personally at, on Twitter at JL Levine. That's J A Y L L E V I N E. Um, you are more than welcome to um, connect with me on LinkedIn. Um, please visit our blog sites. Um, Porter Wright hosts many valuable and insightful blogs, and I invite you to, um, to peruse them. Um, Antitrust Law Source is our blog, and I invite you to um, come visit us there as well. Um, and finally, I invite you to um, 
you know, write in with any suggestions, not only for a show or if you want to be a guest and you think you um, you have something to offer the audience, um, please let me know. But most of all, I need a better tagline um, to end with. So if any of you have any suggestions, I am not too prideful to take those into account. Uh, for now, thank you very much for listening. Um, this is Jay Levine. Porter Wright Morrison Arthur LLP offers this content for informational purposes only as a service for our clients and friends. This content is not intended as legal advice for any purpose and you should not consider it as such. All rights reserved.